You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, good morning, America. This is Pete Mecca, your host for A Veteran Story on AmericasWebRadio.com. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, my guest today is Vietnam veteran and doctor of dentistry, uh, Don Moeller. What a great last name for a dentist, Moeller. Don holds a total of six degrees, one from San Jose State University, the University of Alabama, Hampton University, the Andersonville Seminary, and two from the University of California. His pre-professional education includes U.S. Army medical training or medic training and operating room technician training at Fort Sam Houston, Texas, and respiratory therapy training at Fort uh, Foothill College in San Jose, California. Uh, he served his country as an enlisted man in Vietnam and retired from the Army as a lieutenant colonel. If I covered all his experiences and education and service to country, I'd be introducing this man all the day long. So without further ado, Don, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you for having me and allowing me to speak to the veterans. I appreciate it. Well, we appreciate you. Uh, Don, let's start with the basics. Uh, where are you born and raised, and why in the world did you join the United States Army? Well, I was born in Chicago, Illinois, before it was as bad as it is now, <laughs> and then I left for San Diego, California, and uh, and became a little California boy. And I joined the Army because the Ar- because the Secretary of Defense or the President personally wrote me a letter and asked me to join. Well, that was very nice of you. What was your response? My response was to add another year and re- enlist so I could might get a j- job doing something I like because before I was in the eleven Bush job category. <laughs> Beating the bushes down. Okay. Uh, when did you graduate from high school? Uh, sixty-five. Nineteen sixty-five. Yeah, me too. Me too. Okay. Now, when you went to the army. Did you get a choice of the jobs? Uh, yeah, I wanted to be a brain surgeon, but they said I didn't have enough education, so uh, they they said uh, combat medic was open, so I took that. Okay, what uh, did you, I guess you just had an interest in medicine, and, and did you sort of know what you were getting into, asking to be a medic, knowing that you were probably going to end up in Vietnam? Well. Uh, I, I knew I liked the medical area, and I had two years of college before I went in in biology and chemistry and stuff like that. And I was headed towards, a, a, you know, a medical field. But you know, being in all the sciences and still working part time, it got it'd be real fatiguing in college. And then as things started to wobble, I was it was uh, going to be real soon before I'd be drafted anyway. So. Um, I just decided to go ahead and join. Okay. Uh, all right. Now, after basic, uh, tell us a little about about your training as a medic. Where did you go? And tell us a little bit about the course. Yeah, uh, I went to Fort Sam Houston, Texas. Pretty much even today, it's where all the medics still train, and they have basic officer courses for the dental and medical nursing corps and stuff like that for your the, the medical dental office basic training. So I went there for uh, medic training. It was a ten week program, uh, and it was a good program because you have to look at what the army's job was. It, it was to take all comers 
and train them to be proficient in uh, saving lives uh, of, of the uh, soldiers who were wounded. And so they had to make sure that you had a good fundamental knowledge uh, of basic medicine uh, and also like field sanitation, uh, transport of the wounded patient, and, and other topics. And they did a very, very good job. So you, you felt you were well-trained when you got out? Well, yeah, every medic feels he's well-trained to get you first casually. And then, <laughs> you know, you know that's, I don't care if even after I went to medical school, you think you're well-trained until you get your first, first casually in the ER, and then your brain kind of fizzles. So, you know, everybody thinks they're well-trained. Like, I'm sure aviation, until you have an engine go out, I'm sure you think you're well-trained. Oh, yeah, yeah, you got that right. Uh, you also uh, attended uh, there at Fort Sam Houston the operating room technician training. What, what in the world was that? Well, uh, basically, when uh, yeah, I have to say that the Army does it a little bit differently than the civilian world. And because uh, in the military, your operating room technician has to be able to put up tents has to be able to sterilize the instruments and under other than ideal conditions with compared to computer operated stuff uh, at, at that time uh, you have the simple and very good sterilization procedures how to put up the surgical kits and then when you go to the operating room uh, you have to assist the surgeon now in the civilian world the operating room tech hands the instruments to the surgeon. But the first case I did when I got to Vietnam, uh, because I trained a little bit in, in stateside in, in civilian army, I mean in army fixed hospitals. So I got to Vietnam, and the, the surgeon made an incision, was for a, a belly surgery, and there was a little what we call bleeders. And I'm sitting there with a hemostat to stop the bleeding in my hand, and he looks at me and he says, when are you going to clamp it? And I, what? He said, when are you going to clamp it? And I thought, geez. So from the very first incision till a year later when you left, you you were really more than an OR tech. You were more like a, a, a surgical first assistant. And in the United States, the OR techs don't do that. Okay. When did you get your orders from Vietnam? Too soon. <laughs> uh <laughs> I, they selected me to go to become an instructor in the operating room school. And so after graduating, that was a 12-week program. That was a very good program as well. Very, Army's got great training. It really does. And uh, after that, they said, would you like to be an instructor? I said, well, you know, the alternative was Vietnam, and it sounded good. So I went through an instructor training course. I think I was an instructor for about six months, and then uh, I got orders for Vietnam. All righty. Uh, and where did the, uh, was you, were you stationed in Vietnam? Where did you go? Well, I was in three places. Uh, you In the military, as you know, you've got your primary MOS and your secondary. Well, medic training uh, is was my primary, but then when you became an OR tech, then it became your secondary. But when I went to Vietnam, they used me in my secondary MOS, which was regular medic. And so I went to the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment in, um, in uh, Zwan Lock. 
Okay. And you say you went to three places. Uh, I'm going to let you run with the ball here. Uh, you're in Vietnam. Okay. You're a medic. Uh, go ahead and tell us as much as you can about your tour in Vietnam, the good days, the bad days, what you saw, what you experienced. Uh, I've just passed you the ball, Doc. Run with it. Okay. Well, when I got to 11th Cav, uh, they, you go through their jungle jungle training. It's about a week and before you're sent out to the units. And then they arrange uh, with the squadrons, and then they make sure that you've, you're going to be able to do the job. And so during that time of waiting to be assigned, it was about a month and a half to two months, they needed an OR tech, and that took priority. And so I was moved to the 93rd Evacuation Hospital uh, in, um, ben, in Long Bend. And so I was there probably about four months uh, and that was very intense because the military hospitals uh, get a high volume of patients. It goes from feast to famine. And the first day you get there, uh, unlike a, a normal orientation at a hospital, they, we had uh, nurses that reported they were supposed to have two weeks of orientation. And they threw them right in. Remember, they're trained as operating room nurses, but they put them into treating casualties. And by the time we quit doing the casualties, it had been four or five days and already done a couple hundred cases. So they said, well, you're orientated. Uh, well, that happened to the enlisted guys. And what you did is you watched the senior guys, the senior medics, uh, who uh, were not doing what we were, quote, trained to do in the States. In other words, you were a first assistant on the operation and uh, clamping arteries, retracting tissues, stopping the bleeding. And in certain cases, like with uh, multiple fragment wounds from, from the landmines, you would help mm. to breed the patient. So uh, you got to remember the average age of the, uh, the soldiers in Vietnam was between 19 and, let's say, 22. So you've got, I was 21 the day, the day I turned 21, I left for Vietnam. So you got a 21-year-old uh, kid you know, playing junior doctor. I mean, and we got good at it. What we did, we didn't, don't think we did brain surgery or resecting lungs. We didn't do that. We were picking fragments out. And the sooner you got those guys off the table, uh, the more lives you could save. So as an OR tech, you started your first day in the middle of casualties and you worked in for like eight to 10 hours. And you keep that rate up for a year, uh, you get pretty good at what you do. And those and the techs were really, really good. Uh, every soldier that came in, they got excellent medical care. And so now after doing that, you, yeah. Don, let me ask you something. I, I think everybody would really like to know, uh, what was your thinking in that four months you were in the operating room, all these young kids coming in with probably horrible wounds and everything else, I guess I want to ask you, how much beer did you drink after work? I mean, it had to be traumatic. So just explain how you felt about about what you did. Well, uh, basically, you're – and honestly, uh, I can look retrospectively because being a regular, uh, you know, maxillofacial surgeon and a physician now, I can look back, and it's the same as what these nurses and medics and whatever in this COVID – you're so freaking busy trying to keep these guys alive, you really don't have time for your emotions. 
and the same with the nurses. You don't sit, if you want to sit and reflect on it, you, you, you're pretty tired, and you don't have a lot of time. And, and, and as a kid, you know, uh, and, and a 21-year-old doing that kind of stuff, you're, you're more a kid than an adult. You don't, your philosophical mission in life is to keep these soldiers alive, and you don't, you don't really think about it. And wow. now, when you see, and you, you can't, because you don't do anybody any good because you're going to lose lives. We lost a couple the first week. And you just put it out of your brain because that's not going to get the mission done. And it's, you know, it's later and when I talk about PTSD. Uh, you know, later on when your brain starts to sort it out, yeah, you'll think about it then. But the, but the, the staff just pushed ahead because if you wanted to stop and think, well, how am I going to, you know, put this into my life and fit this into the puzzle of life? Hey, you got ten more patients. You don't have time for that, so you just jump in and do the casualties. And then in your off time, uh, I went to college over there. I took correspondence courses. I kept my mind. It was mission oriented. Learn more, do more, save more guys. It, it's kind of like asking a guy, I guess, in a sporting event. You know, they get a foul ball or hit a, you know, hit the guy with a ball in a pitch. You keep moving. You got, oh, like, gee, I wonder if he's hurt or, you know, you just keep playing the game. And does that answer you your kind of your question? Right. Yes, sir. You go to the next pitch. Okay. We're going to take our first break here. We'll be right back with Doc Moeller. And uh, stay with us, folks. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion on America's Web Radio? Just email gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll get back to you. Thank you. All right, folks, we're back with Doc Moeller. Uh dentist in his private life, but as a medic in Vietnam, he was enlisted. He was discussing what it was like to be in the emergency room uh, for four months. Don, after your experiences in the emergency room, uh, the operating rooms, uh, what did you do after that? Well, they selected me to be on a special operations team, no pun intended. Uh, It was like a KJ team and they said you're going to do a classified mission and you know I was like an E4 or whatever it was E5 who knows uh, <laughs> go get on the helicopter down at the landing place and so you're flying along and uh, then you, you land at a navy base down in uh, Canto 
Army Navy base, uh, and they were doing an operation, uh, no pun intended, uh, and and I was assigned to a Navy ship, the Mercer. It was a converted LST uh, with uh, a flight deck where they could bring in casualties, and we also supported the Brownwater Navy, the Mobile River Marine. Uh, those guys really uh, hard charging. Uh, hats off to these guys. So, and they had Zippo boats that went up and down. So anyway, we uh, were on the ship for a month or whatever. Who's keeping track of time? And more than a month, less than two months. So, any rate, uh, we were well, at sea. About, what did you do on the ship? Tell us a little bit about your experiences on the ship. Well, what they did when they when they needed to supplement the Navy doesn't carry a surgical team on those ships. And so when they have special operations uh, missions, I'll call them missions, it's easy. When they have special missions, they supplement that uh, Navy team with Army team. In this case, they did. So we had two surgeons and two anesthetists and, and four surgical techs. And so we were put on that ship to support this mission. And But basically what, <laughs> what happens on a ship, you know, I... I did not know uh, until I went down to eat on the in the Navy. We they were eating steak, and they had you know great food. And I and I thought, what's the story? You know, I'm in the Army. We never got steaks. Maybe once every four months, maybe. And I said, how come you Navy guys get steaks? And they said everybody eats the same thing in Vietnam. Well, then I realized that our uh, meat products guy or you know the who the, whoever were the chefs whether the cooks were trading steaks for favors in our unit <laughs> and so you never knew who would expect a steak in vietnam you know but and then when they washed our clothes they came back with threadbare the navy washed our army guys clothes and I, I went down, I said, I'm just curious, what did you do to my clothes? And he goes, who was washing them before? I said, well, our mama-san would wash them. He says, well, she go out and check the water she uses. <laughs> well, basically, it was muddy water, and the newbie's clothes got put in with the old guy's clothes, so it made them look a lot darker green. But when the Navy put them in their professional washer, all the dirt finally let go. So, any rate, uh <laughs> So what we did on the ship was we did surgeries on the mission, supported the mission when they couldn't uh, be taken care of or immediate stabilization. Okay, that's basically you're you're getting the guys stabilized and then they yes maybe it's called the go- hospital yeah. like that. Yeah, that's the thing that makes army medicine magic. It's the golden the golden hour, and they. Uh, the Army is, is, leads the way, Army, Navy, you know, Air Force, the trauma surgeons, they lead the way because if you can, especially a young patient who's very salvageable, you can get within the first hour of that man into a critical care uh, scenario, uh, he's got a 90% plus chance of living. Uh, and that's why that golden hour, that's why you had to hustle. That's why they came in. Uh, in, in such large numbers, we'd have Chinooks land, and we knew that was going to be 30 patients. And you weren't going home till they were all treated. And so you, we had uh, basically four to eight operating tables. Uh, and 
they were full. You, there were no breaks. You didn't go for coffee. You just kept going, going, going. And trust me, when you're doing surgery, it's hours, I mean, 10 hours seems like an hour. Your brain is just totally fixated on the soldiers. So you're on an adrenaline rush the whole time. Time flies. But nevertheless, after that stint in the Navy, uh, I got sent back to the 93rd Back Hospital uh, to be a you know, surgical tech there. And so I finished my tour out doing that. Okay. Uh, tell us, your tour in Vietnam, you know, as a technician like that and operating rooms and around the guys who are wounded, you, you have to have some stories that, that uh, just stick out in your mind. Tell, tell us something about Vietnam that really stuck with you all these years. Well, the horrific nature of the of the wounds, the uh, <clears throat> the ERs I work, you know, as a physician and in my tra- surgical training, uh, you know, gunshot wound or a, a car wreck. But in Vietnam, everybody that came in, the high powered weapons made destroyed massive amounts of tissue, and they a small entry wound and a massive internal destruction you know a little little wound and you lose the patient and the other thing is they got them they did such a good job with the aerovac teams and the combat medics in the field uh they got them back that that in normal civilian let's say you got that same injury out in the country here in the united states you wouldn't make it to the er but they were so fast and did such a tremendous job so brave those helicopter crews that go in they got them back and we we had folks that barely had a pulse and they had you know half a heart and their liver was blown away they really never had a chance but we didn't we just kept going we didn't care whatever it took we were they got them there we were going to try so the wounds were absolutely horrific they were not like civilian casualties and then and our customers our patients uh were young they're all young you know, well, I mean, anybody under 30 is young, but, you know, between 18 and 24. So, you know, that was the thing. Every day you went to work, nobody went in to our operating room or the back hospital with a, you know, little mini, hey, I cut myself, Sarge. No, nothing like that. They were, went to get a ticket to get into our show, you had to have a serious wound. And so we didn't see any, you know, like you go to hospital now, uh, pre-COVID, you had elective surgeries, you know, and yeah. you didn't have anything like that at our our hospital. Wow. I wonder how many of our guys were saved by those beautiful choppers. Uh, oh, listen, no t- hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands. They wouldn't have made it. You know, the VAC system and, they, and the bean counters in the Army did a lot of statistics, and they can tell you that is phenomenal. As a matter of fact, the modern AeroVac hospital ER systems are based on the Army in Vietnam and, and, yeah. the, and the methodologies. Yeah, it's that, yeah. yeah, the helicopter's most beautiful sound. I mean, it's beautiful sound if you're in the field and one's coming to get you, but if you're a medic, here comes business, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, and you never forget that thump thump of, of the Huey helicopter. No, you don't. You don't. 
man, I, I just can't imagine how many guys were saving. And I have, uh, I know a lot of guys that were chopper pilots in Vietnam, and those are some of the bravest guys I've ever met. Uh, oh, beyond comprehension. Crazy as hell, I tell you that. But you know, I, I got a story from a friend, Roger Thronson. He he was he's also an oral max face surgeon, but he was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam, and his he was assistant, he was a co-pilot, and he was going in to get some casualties, and uh, they liked to get in, get them, and get out, but they were hovering too long, and he looked over at his pilot friend, he said, let's go, you know, they have a motion, thumbs up, let's get the hell out of here, well, he looked over and his friend was taking pictures, and he said, what are you doing, he says, my dad said I haven't sent him any pictures for the whole war, so I have to get him some pictures. They had bullets coming through their glass, their windshield. He's pulled on the collective and said, I'm leaving. You know, I mean, that's how gutsy those guys were. They just, they didn't have, they, if you had common sense, you probably wouldn't have made it through flight school. I know. They, they, they pulled some remarkable stuff in Vietnam. I know one Marine that landed on a mountain over in uh, Laos. Uh, that Chinook just sort of backed up to the mountain, and they lowered the ramp, and that guy just held it still so those Marines could get out. And then, uh, remarkable. I'm, I mean, these were kids, too. These are 19, 20, yep. 21 kids, uh, just like World War II, flying the bombers and the fire planes. Uh, when I was up. on the Navy ship, I remember one of the helicopter pilots, we were just leaning over the rail looking out at the ocean, and he was a captain. And we were talking, and he goes, he goes, yep, I just got shot down for the fourth time yesterday. I said, what do you mean you were shot down for the fourth time? He goes, he looks at me, he goes, I mean, I was shot, I've been shot down four times. And I thought, you know, if you got shot down once, you, you just packed your bags and went back to the United States. <laughs> they get you another helicopter. I shot down four times, man. I, I will never forget that. But the, and the guy keeps going back to get the casualty. So, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I interviewed guys that were in that uh, uh, San Juan uh, 719, I think the raid that the guys went to Laos. There were uh, the one guy I talked to, he was shot down three times in one day. Oh, that's unreal. Yeah. Uh, Lam Song 719, that's what it was. And, and they, they they want to. They get back and they say, give me another chopper. Let's go, let's go. Um, it's like you taking care of the casualties. Give me another. Bring, bring it in. Bring it in. Give me another. That's right. That was Vietnam to a T. Uh, great, great. All right, we're just about ready to get off Vietnam. Anything else you want to say about Vietnam before we get you home? Uh, to all the guys that fought there, hey, welcome home, man. All right, very good. Um, uh, we're going. I tell you what, we're going to have to go a, a break in just a minute. I want to thank you very much, Don, for what you did in Vietnam. Um, that takes a special person to become a technician like that. I know the doctors, the nurses, uh, the medics in Vietnam, there's no telling how many lives they saved, and, and they put their lives in danger every day. What about you? Did you go through a rocket, the mortars, or get sniped at very much? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, actually, um, they'd hit hit the long bin, and uh, they'd they'd mortar the area. But, you know, the first night I was in the 11th Cav, they walked mortars 
mortars through the company area, and I'm going, you know, I, they they also had a fire base there, so they would, I mean, a, a artillery, and they'd support troops, and the artillery rounds would be going off and waking you up all in the middle of the night, and being a newbie, you know, okay, I heard this wham, right? wham, and I go, oh, geez, now they're starting to fire mission, you know, at three in the damn morning, you know, and so I just laid in my bed, I said, I'm just, I'm never going to get any rest. Well, everybody in the hooch in the tent was running out. And I go, look at these guys. They're running out for formation. And, if, you know, this just is, I'm not going to make a year in this place. I'm not getting any Great. sleep. And then I started seeing flashes. I'm going, now what? Well, the reason they were hauling bananas out of that tent was we were getting mortared. You know, I'm, Mr. Goofy's laying in his rack wondering, Right. <laughs> Trying to philosophize about the war. You know, so anyway, it, you can run a lot faster than you thought you can when your brain gets in gear. <laughs> uh, uh, I can relate. I can relate. All right, we're going to our second break, folks. We'll be right back with uh, Doc Muller here and uh, what he did after Vietnam and uh, stayed in the uh, service of our country. We'll be right back. My name is Kyle Hayes, a motorsports student at Alfred State College. Every year, Alfred State students compete in the Great Race, which is a cross-country time endurance rally for vintage vehicles. As you can imagine, it's pretty costly. I'm asking for your help. Your donation can make it possible for these students to live their passion and promote the vintage automobile industry. Please visit our site at give.alfredstate.edu and search Great Race to learn more and help us reach our goal. Thank you. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we're back with Dr. Uh, uh, Moeller. They just left Vietnam as an enlisted man. Don, tell us a little bit about uh, your education and your life after Vietnam, and then take us all the way up to Desert Storm. Uh, well, I got, got back from Vietnam, and they had an early out program. <clears throat> if you were going to get in uh, to college, <clears throat> excuse me, so I got a 90-day drop to finish college. So I finished college uh, in about a year and a half after I got back, and then I got into dental school. Uh and that was uh, four years. That was in UC San Francisco. And I worked uh, part-time as a respiratory therapist in an OR tech uh, to uh, put myself through dental school uh, and not graduate in debt. And so uh, after dental school, I went back in the Army uh, as a general dentist, and I was at uh, Fort Campbell for about four years, and then uh, I started a residency in oral maxillofacial. Huh? Is that what you went through OCS, right? No, no OCS. Never did OCS. Uh, they it, What happens is it, in the Army Dental Medical Corps, veterinary, uh, and 
you come in as a captain, and oh. so I, I went from uh, uh, spec five to captain. I didn't ever <laughs> was never second lieutenant. I, you know, I um, when I first when you first come on back back on active duty, you are uh, 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 an officer. But you don't go th- the basic training you go through. You're already an officer when you go through it. So it's a very if you've been enlisted, it's a very strange situation because you, you know you're just instant captain. You don't. You, you, I knew what a captain was, but none of the other captains knew what a captain was. You know, but so so. So you leave the army as an enlisted guy. Next thing you come back on active duty, and they're saluting you. So yeah, it it's weird, and it, you have to understand that it's they have movies like Mash because truly the dedicated people in the Army Medical Dental Corps, Nursing Corps, they got other things on uh, their mind. I had a anesthetist; they're like an anesthesiologist who worked in my private practice office. And she was in the reserves, and I said, so what was your rank in the reserves? And she looked at me, and she said, well, whatever they call that rank after captain. (laughs) She she was a major. And we, you know, when we were coming through the uh, basic officer course at Fort Sam, we had an orthopedic surgeon. We had a squad. We had a couple of general practitioners and some orthopedic surgeons. Well, anyway... Um, having been at Fort Sam before, uh, and we didn't have much money, I told the guys on the team, I said, look, let's go to the quartermaster's uh, um, shop, and we, we can save money. You don't have to get this your rank at the at the PX. And so we're in line, and I said, give me uh, three captain's bars, two, two for my uniform and one for my hat. And so the next captain gets Well, the orthopedic surgeon was a major and he go, he didn't even know what he was. He says, "Give me three captain bars," and you know when. And I said, "Pete, you can't get these." He goes, "No, I trust you. I trust you explicitly." I said, "You can't get them." He said, "Why?" I said, "Because you're a major." He says, "What does that mean?" I said, "Here's like board certified orthopedic surgeon who didn't understand the difference between a captain and a major." So you know, go ahead with your education, everything. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, so, so anyway, I, I was in the Army. I went through Walter Reed uh, uh, maxillofacial training. Excellent, excellent, excellent training. Then I went to Europe uh, in Augsburg. I was chief oral surgery. Then I came back to Fort Eustis and was chief oral surgery at uh, Fort Eustis. Uh, and then I went to Fort Benning. I was chief oral surgery at Fort Benning. And then I got another invitation to come to a war. And uh, we were uh, the you have what's called profus fillers. You might be in a like I was chief oral surgery at Benning, but I had I didn't know it, but I had another hat that I wore in some mythical organization as a profus filler. And they said you're also the oral surgeon for the second mash. So when the the balloon goes up, you know I came back to my job as chief oral surgery, and there was a reservist sitting in my seat. And, well, I happen to know because just he's another oral surgeon in Georgia. I said, "What are you doing here, Dick?" And he goes, "Well, this ain't your ranch anymore." And I go, "What happened?" You know, I was on leave. He says, "You're you're leaving," and we just laughed. And I said, "Okay, where am I going?" He handed me the order. So I was assigned to the second mash. So the second mash deployed in December to 
to go over to uh, Vietnam. I mean, uh, Desert Storm, and we went and we prepared. We had what's called deployable medical systems. So we had uh, uh, trucks with uh, uh, operating room units, pharmacy units, etc. That were self-contained boxes. And it's kind of interesting. They didn't have enough enlisted folks to drive the deuces in the five ton. So I ended up uh, driving a five ton uh, in the rear of the column, uh, you know, driving a five ton truck down the road as a lieutenant colonel. But it was fun. I enjoyed doing that. Uh, and then when we got up north, we had to dig some trenches uh, for the scuds. And make a long story short, I. I've restored a bulldozer. I know how to drive it. So, any rate, I went to the engineers and said we need to have some pits dug, you know, for our staff to get into these trenches and pits. And he says we we have bulldozers, but we don't have any um, engineers to operate them because they're all up north. I said, well, I used to drive. I just blew smoke at them. I knew how to operate one. But anyway, said so I I've driven dozers. He said, fine, Colonel, just go get one and. So I got a dozer and drove it over to our hospital compound, was digging trenches uh, with the dozer. And after about three hours, this E-7 walked out. I didn't have my helmet on or anything. I was just grinding away at that terribly hard dirt. And the uh, sergeant, he he came up to me and he goes, hey, boy, he said, you better get a, you better get your helmet on while you're, while you're operating that. And I said, yes, sir. You know, and I put my helmet on. And he, he said, you want to look at me when I'm talking to you? And he he, he saw the lieutenant colonel's rank, whatever it was, and he, he just froze. He said, sir, I'm I'm well out of order, but can I just ask for one thing? And I said, well, what's that, Sergeant? He said, can you just stay there while I take a picture? I want to get a picture of an actually get a picture of an officer working. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so he took his dozer back because he had to take it up north. So uh, that was pretty. We didn't end up taking casualties because the war was over in what ninety six hours or something like yeah. that. Uh, so that was wonderful. That was wonderful. So you were you in uh, Saudi Arabia or Kuwait? No, Saudi Arabia. Oh no, we we were we were King KKMC King Khalid Military Center, and then okay. we jumped up north across the line into Iraq. We were in convoy formation, and uh, that's when I was driving the uh, five-ton with the depth meds behind it. They were on dollies, you know. It looked yeah. like a tractor trailer, so anyway, we we're, were driving those. But the war was over with minimal casualties, and then I came home, and then after I finished the Army, I uh, got out and went to medical school and uh, then did an internship and then started private practice. Okay. I know you did a lot of research experience and teaching experience. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I uh, I got a graduate degree in cell biology while I was at Fort Eustis at Hampton University. And then when I got to um, Fort Benning here, they needed somebody to t teach at Troy State University in their science department. So... In the evenings, I uh, a couple nights a week, uh, I taught biology because uh, they had a lot of soldiers that couldn't leave post uh, and had to get their college education, and they didn't have a science 
science program. They needed a science person, so I uh, I taught biological sciences uh, so the troops could get their degrees. All right. Uh, Did you enjoy that? Do you enjoy teaching? Yeah, I really did. I really did because I love helping people uh, on the flip side of life climb up the same ladder that I did, you know, and uh, they... They had an opportunity, and the soldiers, were, most of them were soldiers. Almost all the classes were soldiers. So uh, you could ask a little bit more out of them uh, than you could in a civilian classroom. And so, yeah, it was, it was really, uh, really nice to do that. Uh, compare, the, compare the guys today to the ones that you uh, trained with during the Vietnam era, what's the difference? Well, you got, I hate to sound like a a science statistician guy. During Vietnam, you had a huge number of people on active duty, and you had minimal training times, and the amount of money that you could invest, say, training a medic, you know, hey, you got 10 weeks, uh, that's it. In today's Army, the, I think they go six months, to be a regular wow. medic. Wow. Yeah, it's something like that, but it's not 10 weeks. It may be, don't hold me to it because the military specialties are a little bit different, but the medics now, because I had medics in the Army that were my patients, and we just, you know, talk old times. But it's, I think it's called X, X-ray or whiskey, MOS now, but 91 X-ray, but they go a much longer time, and they, I think they have hospital rotations, and so the medics today are very much better trained, but you know, if you get in a war where you've got to have a couple million guys coming through the training system, you you can't support that training. So, you know, with all due respect to the to my buddies in Vietnam, with the training we got, we had to do this almost the same job. And so yeah. today, the modern medic, and you can go online and see what the training is for the Army medic. Now, it's it's much more extensive. But, of course, now, that's not with a high-tempo deployment schedule. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And nothing's going to train a medic or a surgeon like war will. I hate to say that. But uh, I know that you saw things in Vietnam and experienced things in the medical field that uh, helped you later in life, uh, made you the kind of uh, dental surgeon that you are now, Don. Right. You learned in the military, you don't whip out, get the job done. I mean, that's kind of the surgical personality that you develop, you know, if you're looking for a wimpy job, sell shoes. I mean, I actually had, yeah, I, I had a, when I was in training, uh, this one anesthesiologist didn't want to come in in the middle of the night, and the intern, I heard her on the phone go, look, if you don't like the hours, sell shoes. And I just, I had to bite my lip, I was laughing so hard. You know, she, and I, you know, I, I thought, that will be my motto, if you don't like the hours, sell shoes, so... Love it. I love it. All right, we are going to our last break, everybody. Uh, stay with us. Great interview. Uh, we'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, 
former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're back with Dom uh, Moeller, uh, uh, oil surgeon, Vietnam veteran, Desert Storm veteran. Uh, Don, with your experience and everything, what kind of professional uh, membership do you belong to? It must be extensive. Well, yeah, in a nutshell, you, you have to be board certified in oral and maxillofacial surgeon. And I, I have, like a pilot, that's one of my tickets. And then, you know, you have to have your medical and dental state license and keep those up. And then there are other organizations that I've been a member of or past member of the American, you know, Academy of Craniofacial Pain, American Association of Oral Medicine. All these have been, I've been in and out of these organizations. They're not certifications. They're just memberships. Okay. All right. And I know that you have some private military equipment. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, it's it's kind of a sickness. Uh, you You either like it or you don't. And when you do like it, you, you really, there's no end to collecting it. So the, what our club does down here, and it's great, great, great fellowship, because we have NCOs, uh, you know, interested people, whatever. But we restore the say, old. You say, that, you say down here, for the folks uh, that need to know, that's Columbus, Georgia, near Fort Benning, right? Right, right. But this right, is the military vehicle preservations throughout the whole United States. Matter of fact, it's throughout the whole world people do this. Uh any rate, we get old Jeeps and uh equipment and we restore it to the point that the public can sit in it. We would our club down here, the Columbus Antique Military Organization, we sponsored uh a place at the air show for twenty years and we'd bring deuce and a half, five tons, gun trucks, uh World War Two Jeeps, Korean War Jeeps I like the uh, medic. The medics had special ambulance jeeps, uh, and then, the, yeah, and then I got uh, this stuff wasn't cheap when I got it. I mean, it wasn't expensive when I got it, and so we just fix them, paint them, and let the kids kind of like an amusement park. They get to uh, see what their grandfathers and fathers did, and then we also had soldiers from Fort Benning. I have a one one four, which is an armored recon vehicle, just a little aluminum hull. Uh, and the the active duty guys who were on the Bradleys and the Strikers go, what is this thing? <laughs> and it's a small little scout vehicle. We fought wars in this. And he goes, how? 
you can't stand <laughs> up in it. I said, and then they say, well, where's your air conditioning unit? I said, no, you open no. the hatch. <laughs> yeah, so at any rate, that's pretty much how that ended. All right, do you, do you have, is that the only vehicle you have? No, I've got 14 of them. Uh, uh, my, I've got, uh, yeah, I've got two World War II Jeeps, uh, two Korean War Jeeps, a mule, a, two Cracker Box ambulances, a 715, a, uh, a mule, the 114, and a uh, gas deuce and a half, and uh, a duck from World War II. Oh, man. i got to come see you. <laughs> uh, yeah, and if you catch the hey, – go ahead. Tell the folks what a mule is. They don't know what a mule is. Well, it looks like a picnic table with wheels on it. It's uh, ha- it's it carries half ton uh, of material. Uh, uh, they use them in Vietnam. They were, uh, were they carry actually technically carry more than a jeep. And I'm not talking about Hummers. They're jeeps. They carry more than a jeep, and they're extremely useful because it's a flat deck, and you, the driver only occupies a corner of it. And they can carry up to probably a ton. They say half ton, but if you're like they take them like at uh, some of the base camps, they would have a couple of those, and they go down to the air place, whatever the airport, whatever they call it, run, runway, and they'd unload C-130s, and they'd go out and they'd put a ton of artillery, medical supplies, you know, food, whatever, on a little mule and haul it. And four guys can easily lift it. <laughs> All right. I have 14 vehicles in your backyard, military vehicles. Um, I'd love to see that. You must have a very understanding wife. More than understanding. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're, we're going to move on to a topic that uh, uh, I know this is your, your, your pet project here, and it is fascinating, folks. You need to listen to this. I want you to discuss in detail, if you want to, Don, uh, you just had a uh, something approved by the Department of Defense for an approved treatment of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Tell us about that. Okay, uh, let's yeah, let's jump into this. It's take about five minutes, and don't want to fall asleep if you're driving. Uh, PTSD is, I'd say, the signature wound of pretty much all the wars, and depending on the number of uh, people and like the corps, like Air Force, Marines, whoever, and combat versus rear echelon, you can have incidents of PTSD as high as 30% in some units. The average is about 12 to 18%. Now, the other thing that we need to talk about, and, and not being, I'm not going to get beat up with the science or beat you up with the science, I call it the, the frustration cycle of PTSD. And imagine a circle with a, a, a big circle, a cycle, with eight little circles around that, like a merry-go-round, horses on a merry-go-round. One of the things that even with excellent care, uh, good psychology, good medicine, uh, 40 to 90% of the people who've had PTSD and also sub-threshold PTSD have, have nightmares. So I'm getting on the merry-go-round the horse labeled nightmares. Well, the thing about nightmares, if you can't get any sleep, uh, you, you just can't get through the day. And what are some characteristics of P- 
PTSD. Well, one of them that, and, and also subthreshold PTSD, is you're irritable and you're angry and you get depressed. That just comes with having PTSD or post-traumatic stress. And the criteria for having PTSD has been changed. And the, it's called a Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of 2015. But the point is, if you've been associated with traumatic events, life-threatening events, observed them, or had a loved one or a special person taken through trauma, you can also get post-traumatic stress or sub-threshold post-traumatic stress. Well, what happens after that? Well, you can go have psychotherapy or you can try the medicines. And what is the result of that? Well, basically, you get resolution in about 25 to 30 percent of those cases. What happens to the other 66 to 70 percent? Well, uh, you're, you're going to be stuck with components of PTSD. And one of the components that you're stuck with is the nightmares and sleep disruptions. And also, if you have traumatic brain injury, which, which is a partner that runs with post-traumatic stress disorder, they're, you know, birds of the feather flock together. Well, what happens then? Well, PTSD is not just a brain disease, a mental disorder. You have increased chances of myocardial infarction, that's heart attack, irritable bowel syndrome, hypertension, diabetes, abdominal weight gain, metabolic syndrome, and I could go on. PTSD is a total system uh, disease. And the next thing that I want to talk about briefly is with the limited success. I mean, it's not that psychologists in the VA and the Army aren't doing the best they can, but a fellow by the name of well-educated doctor, uh, Dr. Harold Koenig out of Duke, he has a moral injury evaluation that veterans need to think about. And nobody, whether you want to realize it or not, whether you say, hey, I'm not a religious guy or a spiritual guy, it really doesn't matter. You live in a framework, a moral framework. And people coming back have things such as shame, guilt, poor reasoning. Now, what happens? You can't get any sleep. You're frustrated. You're tired. You're angry. And you're cooking off at people. So then you get into a situation where you kind of feel it's very frustrating and hopeless. And this is why I worked with the nightmares. you got to get a night's sleep. And the next thing that can happen is your family starts shaking and rattling and your social contacts are starting to be marginal. And then you're back to the nightmares. So this thing that I, I developed, it was providential because I'm not that smart. But at any rate, I was having nightmares for years, headaches, couldn't sleep. Uh, and grinding my teeth. Not all PTSD necessarily grind their teeth, but I made this device in my mouth that I put in my mouth. Looks like a kind of football night, night guard. Well, it stopped my nightmares. So I thought, hey, I'm getting some rest now. So what I did, and in, in to publish and do research, it's very arduous. I, I did some poster clinics is where you presented at a medical, medical conference. Then I published a paper in the Journal of Special Operations Medicine in 19, uh, 2013. Then you have to get an institutional review board to study this and do real science, not just case reports. Well, we just finished publishing an article, and I want to thank Dr. Don Giddon of Harvard University, a very well-trained senior emeritus scientist from Harvard, both in dentistry and in uh, psychology. 
and we publish an article in the International Dental Journal, and you can get that in September. And it's a proof of concept that this mouth device can, can is significantly attenuates, stops whatever makes less nightmares and insomnia and PTSD patients, and also traumatic brain injury. So, what do you? Where do you go from here? Well, we're we're conducting further studies. You have to have it evaluated. Now, the Defense Center of Excellence for Psychological Trauma read the research, evaluated it, it took them three months, and they said, look, we think there's something here. And is this device safe? Yes, it is. Now, there's FDA approval and FDA clearance. This is FDA cleared because it's a very safe device. Approval uh, by the DOD there's really no end to approving. Just like the COVID vaccine, you got to jump through so many hoops. Hey, how long can you play the game of waiting? Waiting because we do know 22 veterans a day are killing themselves. So I really don't want to stand and what they say play mark time march uh, while my buddies are killing themselves. So yes, this device works. Yes, I wear one, and I've treated probably over eight to nine hundred veterans in my office successfully. So the good news is, once you stop the nightmares, then your psychotherapy improves because you can stay awake and you're not hostile going through the psychotherapy. And so that's why I think this is a very useful adjunct. Uh, so there is hope for the guys with nightmares. So um, this, so it's like almost like a retainer, and it keeps them yes. from grinding their teeth. And that's well, no, actually. What happens, and what happens is it goes in your mouth, and we don't technically know how. I mean, I can, if you got five hours, I can draw some neuro <laughs> hookup diagrams. But there's central processors in your brain that come out of the trigeminal nucleus. That's a nucleus that controls a lot of things. One of them is your how to bite and chew. By putting this soft splint in the mouth somehow it brings the upregulated PTSD brain. Because your brain, you know, I got startle response. That's one of the things that PTSD guys do. You, you got insomnia. You're really revved up. And so this kind of backs that system down. So you're not as angry. You're not as irritable. I mean, ask to be exposed to this. And so you run around, you're, you cough, you're irritable, you have headaches. Well, who wouldn't be a little bit pissed off, you know? So this device really can help that therapy and do some seriously good counseling. Wow. I wish you the, the best of success with this. I think we're running out of time, Don. Fabulous interview. Uh, I want to thank you for your service to your country and also your service to our fellow veterans. Uh, you are a very dedicated individual. Uh, and if you want to pay me for this interview, I'll take one of those Jeeps. <laughs> okay. You just come down and pick one out, and my wife will give you whatever. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.